This is Macro Horizons, episode 156, All Fed, No Fade, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of January 31st. And as an extremely volatile January comes to a close, we're left to ponder the remaining 11 years left in 2022. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the Fed truly redefined the landscape for U.S. rates. At least for the moment, we saw a decidedly hawkish press conference where Powell, in effect, left the door open for a 50 basis point rate hike in March. Now, the groundwork has clearly been laid for a 25 basis point move in March, but by, in effect, not taking a half point move off the table, the market was compelled to price in more than 100 basis points worth of tightening in 2022. Now, this has intuitively pushed front end yields higher, with two-year rates reaching 120 to achieve the highest level since before the pandemic. In fact, as we look at the balance of the yield curve, all major benchmarks are now for all intents and purposes, back to the pre-pandemic levels. Now, this certainly resonates, particularly in the context of recent economic performance. Fourth quarter GDP came in stronger than expected at 6.9% on an annualized basis. The headline price deflator also was at 6.9%, both outpacing expectations and reflecting the fact that there still remains a lot of upward momentum on consumer prices. Within the details of the GDP report, however, it's notable that a significant portion of the upside was a function of inventory rebuild. Now, given the pace of consumption, a rebuild of inventories at a moment when supply chain issues were becoming problematic should be a net positive for growth going forward. That being said, the uncertainty introduced by Omicron will be difficult to ignore as the first quarter's data unfolds. By way of a quick update on our thinking in terms of the Fed, we remain in the 25 basis point camp for the March meeting in terms of a rate hike, followed by another 25 basis points in June, September, and December for a total of four rate hikes this year. The balance sheet runoff will be announced sometime mid-year and increase to a terminal runoff velocity of $60 billion for treasuries and $30 billion for mortgages. Now, the precise timing and signaling around the balance sheet runoff is going to be a function of how the data performs in the beginning of the year, particularly whether or not the year-over-year inflation numbers begin to moderate 
during the second quarter. If the Fed finds itself in a situation where inflation continues to outperform and the yearly numbers don't drift back in line with the historic norms, then there will be a greater sense of urgency on the part of monetary policymakers to normalize not only rates, but the balance sheet. In such a situation, we'd skew the timing of everything a bit earlier. But for the time being, our interpretation is that a series of four rate hikes and balance sheet runoff is extremely consensus at this point, and for all intents and purposes, priced into the market. This goes a reasonable distance to explain why there was such a sharp response to Powell's press conference in which he left open the possibility for a 50 basis point move in March. Our curve flattening bias remains intact. 530s dipped as low as 42 basis points, which marks a cycle low with the exception of early March of 2020 when 530s got as flat as 36 basis points. This leaves 36 basis points in 530s as our next target. Once that's breached, there's very little between that level and the range of 25 to 30 basis points in 530s. In terms of the outright level for 10-year yields, we continue to view the window between the January and March FOMC meetings as the highest probability for 10-year yields to breach 2%. Now, the uncertainties around the upcoming payrolls report will probably keep rates contained until that information has been absorbed by the market. Then the focus will shift to the January inflation data, followed by the FOMC minutes from January's meeting. We expect that those two events will be interpreted from a hawkish perspective and ultimately prove net negative for the treasury market and realistically put 2% tens back on the table. In the very near term, a period of consolidation with 10-year yields between 170 and 190 appears to be the path of least resistance and a trend that we're unwilling to fade. Well, Ian, it was an interesting Fed meeting. And what I mean by that is the statement was generally as expected. We didn't get an early into QE. The groundwork is now laid for liftoff in March. The balance sheet will be coming down at some point later this year. But once we got to Powell's press conference, the chair's tone was taken as hawkish, at least if the shape of the curve is any indication. Yes, and I think that when we go back and we review the press conference, what we see is that there's a pivot point centered around the question of whether or not 50 basis points should be on the table in terms of the pace of rate hikes in 2022. Now, Powell made no commitment in either direction, but in doing so, he left open the possibility of a 50 basis point rate hike in March. Now, our expectations are unchanged at this point. We continue to see 25 basis points in March, 25 basis points in June, 25 basis points in September, and 25 basis points in December. Somewhere in the interim, we'll have the balance sheet runoff announcement, but not outright selling of treasuries into the market. So on net, I think that at this point, the market is pricing into what I'll characterize as a relatively pedestrian tightening campaign. And to some extent, that's why 10-year yields are closer to 170 than they are to 190. 
And there was an aspect of the Q&A that struck us as particularly interesting, and that was the chair's response to the inquiry on if the current economic situation and inflation situation might lend itself to a normalization campaign that won't take the same shape as it did last time around. So alongside the chance of a 50 basis point move, I would also argue that introduces at least the possibility of a rate hike at every meeting, not just every quarter which contributed to the flattening and follow-through repricing we saw on Thursday morning. There's a strong case to be made for hikes at every meeting if the economic data dictates that. I think it's well within the Fed's typical behavior to leave open the possibility to accelerate rate hikes if need be. Now, assuming we only get 25 basis point hikes at the beginning of the cycle, what the market will quickly focus on is whether or not each meeting is live in terms of a potential hike, or if it really comes down to quarter by quarter. And I'll argue that this has further curve implications, particularly for 530s. So at the moment, what we have seen is a continuation of the flattening of 530s, very consistent with our take on the market and how we anticipated the year to play out. We've actually got as low as 42 basis points in this benchmark spread. What remains to be seen is how the market interprets the Fed's willingness to deal with either higher or lower inflation when the actual data comes in. Right now, break-evens are very well contained, suggesting that inflation expectations remain anchored. But when we think about the potential for either re-steepening of 530s or additional flattening, it comes down to gauging how hawkish the Fed really is. And with the ability to shift from quarterly to every meeting hikes, I'll argue that there's still flattening potential in 530s in the event that the realized inflation data comes in above expectations. Let us not forget that the Q4 GDP report showed that the price deflator was at 6.9% on the headline basis, a striking amount of inflation given where we are in the cycle. And also within the intraday price action coming out of the Fed, when Powell took the podium and took this hawkish tone that we've been discussing, Ian, we saw a very sharp reversal in risk assets. The S&P 500 was treading water right around up 1% of the day. And it's when Powell entered the Q&A that we saw stocks sell off sharply to ultimately end the day modestly lower. Now, with the S&P call it 10% off the record highs, I think you and I are on the same page that the downtrade in equities has not yet reached the strike price of the Powell put. And so the Fed must be pleased with not only the retracement and inflation expectations that you were discussing, but also the ability of risk assets to weather the prospect for more than 100 basis points of tightening this year fairly well. Yes. And if we look at overall financial conditions, while financial conditions are the tightest they've been since April 2021, on a longer-term basis, they're still extremely easy. And it's those extremely easy financial conditions that afford the Fed this opportunity to be a bit more hawkish than they might have otherwise. Moreover, we could argue that it's because financial conditions are so easy that they're attempting to recalibrate the amount of money in the system as they start to incrementally provide a disincentive to take on additional risk whether that is duration or credit, really comes down to the fact that 
What QE was designed to do was to push people out the duration curve first, then out the credit curve, eventually ending up in equities. So it follows intuitively that once the Fed starts the process of moving away from an extremely accommodative policy stance, that equities would be the first asset class to demonstrate some type of apprehension. A question that I've received several times this week is, what would need to occur in financial markets to convince the Fed either not to go in March or to hold off on starting the balance sheet rundown? At its core, it comes down to financial conditions, and in that context, we'll be looking at real yields as well as equities and credit. So when one thinks about the increase in 10-year real yields that has occurred over the course of the year, we've gotten to, let's call it, negative 55 basis points in the 10-year space. There's an important range that we've been watching in this context, which is negative 30 basis points to negative 50 basis points. If we're able to get real yields that high, and the equity market is relatively unfazed by the development, I suspect that that will only further embolden the Fed to either begin the conversation about a higher terminal rate rather than the 175, 180 that the market is currently pricing in, potentially even beyond the 250 long run average, or we could find ourselves in a situation where there was enough lingering New Year's optimism in January to sustain higher terminal rates. But if this occurs later in the quarter, perhaps without the benefit of a 6.9% real GDP print for the fourth quarter, that equities appear a lot more vulnerable. And that's really one of the primary risks that the Fed needs to navigate over the course of the next several months. That said, I continue to think that the highest probability during 2022 of 10-year yields breaching that 2% level occurs in the window between the January FOMC meeting and the March 16th FOMC meeting. While there's still a significant amount of economic momentum implied by the data, and before we start to see any of the real fallout from higher costs as they continue to work their way through the system. And Ian, that's a really important point on the timing of what we will likely ultimately see from inflation. Given that monetary policy operates with a 12-18 month lag, any softening in the core inflation figures that we see in the second, third quarter of this year are not going to be a reflection of rate hikes. That's going to be something that's a function of the original motivations that led to the transitory characterization of inflation, some of the supply chain issues beginning to work themselves out, and the new normal economy becoming more resolutely underway. So assuming we see some pullback in inflation from the supply side of the equation initially, it's after that point that the Fed's rate hikes are going to start taking effect and hopefully, at least from Powell's perspective, bring inflation back down closer to the Fed's target. The one counterpoint to that is that the Fed did begin tapering in November. And so with a straight face, the Fed could make the argument if we find ourselves at the end of the second quarter, that it was because they commenced tapering on the sooner side that we're starting to see some more moderation on the inflation front. Now, that strikes me as an argument that monetary policymakers are less likely to make than, say, politicians. But 
when we think about where we'll be in the run-up to the midterm elections, one of the things that I find very notable is how politicized monetary policymaking has become in recent months. And outside of policy rates specifically, we also got new information on how the Fed is thinking about the balance sheet, in line with expectations, but nonetheless informative to hear Powell confirm that the discussion on balance sheet normalization is ongoing. We're in unprecedented territory given the outright size of the Fed's balance sheet, given the outright size of the amount of money in the reverse repo program, and now we have the standing repo facility as another backstop to think about when the Fed ultimately does begin running down its holdings. And on the issue of running down holdings, what we didn't see within the statement that the Fed released was any suggestion that SOMA is considering outright sales into the secondary market. Rather, the initial framework that was laid out was sticking to the same methodology that was used in the last cycle, gradually increasing the amount of securities that aren't reinvested. And Powell used one of Yellen's phrases in that the process should take place completely in the background. And looking forward to next week, this will also have implications for the Treasury Department's issuance needs. We're expecting coupon auction sizes are going to continue to come down at the February refunding announcement. But after that, given what will be lessened Fed reinvestment as we get through the later part of this year and into 2023, the Treasury Department is going to have to make up that shortfall by increasing issuance. Initially, that gap is going to be on a scale that will be readily digested by the bill market, but moving into 2023, with the caveat around any fiscal uncertainty, it's reasonable to assume that it won't be too long before we start seeing coupon auction sizes start increasing again. Another question that we received this week was, who's going to step up to buy treasuries once the Treasury Department loses one of its most consistent customers, namely SOMA and the Fed. As a market, we've been through this before. Recall 2017 to 2019, the Fed was in the process of actively running down its balance sheet. And it turns out in that period that the surprise wasn't who stepped up to buy treasuries, but rather the levels at which market participants chose to become engaged. Specifically, we saw a transition from overseas investors to domestic players, banks, as well as investment funds, at least in the primary market. And one of my biggest takeaways from that experience was that it was less about waiting for rates to back up significantly and more about simply requiring a in-range concession immediately ahead of the takedown itself. So, for example, 10-year yields, if the market were trading at 175 and there were fewer overseas buyers, the domestic players might require a concession up to 180 or 181, as opposed to a complete buyer strike in which 10-year yields were required to go to two and a half or three percent. I think that that's going to be important context as we think about the forward path of 10 and 30-year yields in this environment. And a good opportunity to bring up some sage wisdom. No such thing as a bad bond, just a bad price. Or a bad strategist. In the week ahead, it will be non-farm payrolls week, and we have the January payrolls report expected to come in at 186,000 with an unemployment rate of 3.9%. Average hourly earnings are seen 
increasing five-tenths of a percent, all of which is lower than one might otherwise expect to see given that the fourth quarter's GDP number was 6.9%. But the reality is that Omicron will distort the BLS series in a number of different ways, the most important being in a way that's comparable to the impact of bad weather on the payroll series. So historically, we've watched the category of unable to work due to increment weather to get a sense for any temporary impact on the data. The coronavirus presents a not dissimilar dynamic, and it becomes the most relevant for the headline payrolls for hourly workers who, because of the virus, didn't make it into work during non-farm payroll survey week, which is the week containing the 12th. While these workers are still technically employed, the way it flows through to the payrolls data can lead to temporary distortions. So on net, if anything, we'll be looking for a larger but temporary downside impact on the official BLS data on Friday. This week also contains the February refunding announcement. Auction sizes are expected to decline across the curve, with 10 years seen as 3 billion lower, and 30 years seen as 2 billion lower. Now this is interesting because it comes at a time when the prospects for the Fed to begin running off its balance sheet has left investors focused on the potential for the Treasury Department to increase auction sizes as opposed to the cuts that are relatively consensus at this point. So while we maintain that auction sizes don't dictate the outright level of yields, they do and have historically contributed to curve shape and required intraday or intraweek pre-auction concessions. And all of this with the geopolitical tensions that remain in the background given the tensions between the West and Russia. At the moment, markets are interpreting this particular risk as inflationary, and so if anything, sanctions and saber-rattling will ultimately lead to a greater emphasis on the commodities market, particularly energy prices, natural gas, as well as oil from a substitution perspective. Therefore, as we view this in the context of monetary policy, any greater disruptions resulting from the situation will incrementally contribute to a sustainably higher inflation outlook and ultimately cement the Fed's hawkishness. But at the end of the day, we don't expect this will bring rate hikes forward. But more importantly, any escalated tensions are unlikely to trigger sustainable risk-off and instead will put upward pressure on yields in the front of the curve and contribute further to the curve flattening that's already defined 2022. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And with the jobs report looming, we're left to reflect on sage career advice we've heard throughout the years. Do what you love. There's no such thing as early to a meeting. And if work was meant to be fun, they wouldn't have to pay us to do it. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen 
at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.